How's everybody doing? Good. Turn to um, Deuteronomy 7. So we've been looking at the last few times that I've preached. We've looked at God's love in general, and then we've looked at God's love for his son. We've looked at God's love for creation. Last week we looked at God's love for children. And today we're going to look at God's love for his children. And I remember being, um, I was about a year after I'd been saved, I, I, was, I remember thinking and kind of meditating on um, God's love and kind of chewing on it and mulling it over. And I remember thinking to myself, does God love me the same as the atheist? I remember thinking that. I was like, does he love me the same as the person who curses him and hates him? I wasn't sure. Um, Today we're going to see, so we've already looked at, I mean, he has a love for people in general. Um, He has a love for his own son, a love for creation, a love for children, um, and today a love for his children. And the love that he has for his children is a unique and special love. We're going to look at a few Old Testament passages, then we'll look at a couple New Testament passages, and I'll have some thoughts um, along the way. So Deuteronomy 7. Let's start in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So notice it wasn't because of their, of their greatness. And in fact, he says, you are the fewest of all peoples. So he's, he starts by saying, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Okay, And then, I mean, my question, which is really my question from when I first got saved, was why? Like, why does he love me and what kind of love is that? So why does he love them? And then he gives the answer in verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you. I mean, literally, it's saying he loves you because he loves you. Um, What does that mean? Well, the foundation of what he's talking about when it comes to his love is he loves simply because he wants to love. Um, He didn't love them because they earned it or deserved it or were something great. Um, not because they were great sheep shears or tent makers or could make a mean bowl of Passover soup. Um, he loved them because he chose to love them. And the same is true for us. He doesn't love us because we're great looking, even though some of us are. You're welcome, Greg. He doesn't love us because we're physically strong, we're intellectually superior, we have lots of money. No. Like, in fact, really the scriptures say almost the 
exact opposite. Hold your finger in Deuteronomy because we're coming back to it. But I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians 1. This is probably one of the more humbling passages in the New Testament. Here's what it says, starting in verse 26 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Uh, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if anything, we get, we get kind of the opposite. Like, he chose the foolish, he chose the weak, he chose the low and despised, right? I mean, that's, that's us, okay? He didn't, he didn't look out and try to figure out, oh, who'd be the best, who'd be the greatest. He didn't, he didn't choose based on merits. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, why he chose Abraham? Right? I mean, he chose Abraham, why did he choose him? Why not one of the other thousands of people living at that time? Why not Shader, Lamer, Tidal, Amraphel, Arioch? These are actual people during Abraham's time, and they were much more qualified, if we want to talk about qualifications, because they were the kings at the time of Abraham. Of course, he goes on to defeat them when they take his nephew Lot. But, but why Abraham? Abraham wasn't anything special. In fact, when you read Genesis, he's got some major character flaws. Uh, He chose him and loved him because he wanted to. It's that simple. And the same is true for us. Okay? He loves us because he wants to. Um, He chooses us and loves us because he wants to. We aren't anything special in and of ourselves. Look back at Deuteronomy. We're going to go a couple chapters over to Deuteronomy 10, starting in verse 14. It says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So he's kind of setting this out like, hey, I own it all, right? All of it's mine. It's mine. I can do whatever I want. And then he says, yet, verse 15, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Now, a number of of different translations um, translate this differently. It's got the same idea, um, but they translate it differently. The, The ESV in 15 says, yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers. The NASB says, yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. The NIV, again, similar, but a little different. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And then the New King James says, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And what you see here is the translators, there's actually two Hebrew words for love here, and they're um, kind of wrestling with what's the best way to put that into English. We got two words for love, so it's like he's saying he loved them and he loved them. So how do we communicate that in English? And so you see the different translations 
doing that. The first word translated in those translations is, you see, set his heart, set his affection, or delighted. And then the second word uses love in some form, in love, to love, or loved. So those two Hebrew words, hashak and ahaba, um, really what they're driving at is what one theologian said right here is this. It seems that the double word for love is a way of strongly emphasizing that the motive here was love, rooted only in love and nothing else. The love was deep and passionate and full of desire. So when he's talking about, hey, why, why Israel? It's, it's rooted in that love. He loved them. He chose them and he loved them. And foundationally, his choice is rooted in his love for them. God wanted to leave no doubt that he greatly loved his children. So much so he uses two words for love in the same verse. He might love the nations, but he loves Israel with a unique love, unlike that of the other nations. Look at Isaiah chapter 43, starting in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. He doesn't say this about any other nation, but he says it about Israel. In fact, there's a contrast here, right, between Israel and the other nations. And he's saying, hey, I'm willing to exchange Egypt, Cush and Seba. I'll make the exchange. That's the ransom for you, because you're mine. I'm willing to do that. Well, what about the New Testament? We see the same thing when it comes to the Father, our Heavenly Father, and His children. Look at Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? All right, did you catch that last part? Are you not of more value than they? And the answer is yes, you are of much more value. Keep reading on. 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And again, will he not much more clothe you? Yes, he will. Why? Because he loves you. Okay? Does God take care of his creation? Yes, we actually looked at this passage when I was speaking on that. But he takes care of his people much more so. 
Look over a couple chapters, Matthew 10. We see a similar idea. Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, so his love for his people is different than his love for creation. All right? So sorry, tree huggers, environmentalists, people are more important than creation. Okay? So people are more important than animals. I know some of you are animal lovers, but people are more important. Always, every single time. If we had to choose between 10 dogs living or one human, we choose the one human. If it was a thousand dogs, we still choose the one human. If it was a million dogs, we still choose the one human. Why? Because people are more valuable than animals. That's what God says. People, by being made in his image, have intrinsic value that nothing else in creation has compared to them. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All right, did you see how it said that? In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Why did he choose us? Why did he adopt us? Back to love. Because he loved us. It goes on in chapter 2, start in verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, amen. That was a lot, though. That's like, Paul's like the master of of the run-on sentence, um, which was fine in Greek. Um, Really, there was no punctuation that we would have seen back then. Um, And so they're trying to be faithful as they translate it to us. But I want to break it down to its simplest form here, okay? Um, So if you kind of take out all the extra stuff, um, our subject, starting in verse 4, what's our subject or who is our subject? Hey, this Bible quiz in Steve Sanders, come on, right? God, all right? God and then being rich in mercy, that's some extra stuff. Because of the great love with which he loved us, that's extra. I'm looking for... I'm looking for a verb. We haven't hit a verb yet, okay? Even when we are dead in our trespasses, oh, here's the verb, made us alive together, okay? With Christ. 
So take out some of that extra stuff. God made us alive together with Christ. Then ask the question, why? And the answer is given right there in the text, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. Okay, It's not just a love. It's a great love. And what did this great love do? It made us alive together. It raised us up with him. And it seated us with him in the heavenly places. I mean, do you see this? That is a great love. But guess what? That is a love that he gives only to his children. Unbelievers are not made alive together with Christ. They are not raised up with him and they are not seated with him. They're not. So he shows his great love for his children by doing these things. Now we're going to get to it because God offers this to everybody, right? Everyone has the offer of salvation and anyone can become a child, but only the children are blessed in this way. And guess what? This should make sense. Any earthly father loves his own children differently than he does other children. I mean, is that wrong? No, in fact, if, if I told my kids, I'm like, hey, I love you, um, but I love everyone else, all the other kids in the church, I love them the same, um, that kind of would probably not sit so right with them. All right? So I'm just going to treat all the kids the same in the church, you know, sorry, you four. It's, it's, it's equal ground because I'm supposed to love everybody. No, it's a different type of love that a father exhibits towards his children. What about Jesus? What about the Son of God? What do we see with him? Do we see him displaying a unique love for believers? We do. Look at John 17. Holy cow, there it is again. We can't escape John 17. And that's a good thing. All right, so it starts out in verse 5, John 17. This is Jesus. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Who's the them? Well, he really tells us right here. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, so he's offering this prayer up specifically for the disciples, and then he's going to include us in a little bit, but not the world. That's what he says. Um, all are mine, no, excuse me, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Am I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Um, Go down to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay? So he goes to his disciples at the time, which is not just the 12, but those who were faithfully following after him and had believed in him. There was more than 12. But now he expands it to those who will believe in me through their word. Then he goes on, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Did you catch that last part? Loved them, all right? Disciples back then, and us, even as you loved me. The same love displayed to Jesus is displayed to God's other children. Then it goes on, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known them I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So God wants that love now to be in us. Okay, he displayed it to Jesus and to us, and he wants that to be in us. And here Jesus is praying this for us. Okay, he's not praying for creation. He's not praying for animals. He's not even praying for the world. He's praying for us. And Jesus intercedes for us. Romans 8 in verse 34 tells us Jesus is our intercessor. He's interceding. A lot of times we don't think about Jesus like that. But he's our intercessor. He's interceding on our behalf. Look at Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 25, it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see what Jesus does for the church here? He gives himself, he cleanses her, he sanctifies her, and what's the result of him doing that? The church has splendor. It is holy and without blemish. It is without spot or wrinkle. All right? Back in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is not given to anyone outside the church. There is one bride. Jesus has one bride, and that bride is the church. 
So it's a particular love, a selective love. It's a love for his bride. That makes sense. I mean, I have a particular selective love for my bride, and I should. So should you men. So it would make sense the same would be true for Christ and his bride. It's a particular selective love. If anything, it's really reversed, right? Because this passage right here in verse 32, he says, uh, or 31, look there. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so if anything is reversed, like uh, Christ's relationship with us, okay, the groom and the bride, that models for us our relationship to our spouse. Okay, so we look to him and we see that example, and then we know how to be godly husbands, how to be godly wives. I mean, imagine the response, though, a husband would receive from his wife. I mean, if you were to say to her, honey, I love you, um, but I want you to know that the love I have for you is the same love in every respect that I have for all the women I meet. Indeed, for all the women of the world. If the wife responded by saying, well, then you don't really love me, she would be right. If a husband's love for his wife is not particular, selective, and discriminate, then it's not really a husbandly love. Okay, does Christ treat the church differently than the world? Yes, he does. He gives it his spirit. He gives spiritual gifts. He gives spiritual riches. He lavishes it with mercy. I mean, on and on and on and on. The world does not receive these things. It's offered to them. But why? Why does only the bride? Why not the world? Because the world's not the bride. The church is the bride. Okay? The bride is the one who gets the ring. Only one gets the ring. The bride is the one who gets the vows. Only one gets the vows. Um, it's not husband and wives. It's husband and wife. And Christ has one bride, and it's the church. And guess what? He wants to make sure that his bride knows she is especially loved. Men, you need to make sure your wife knows that she is especially loved. Amen? Look, listen, all these things have to do, what we're talking about, is the good news of Jesus. Because through these verses, you're seeing that God has a special love that he wants to show. And you're, you're going to do one of two things when God shows you his love. And I think it's best shown in 2 Corinthians. So look there in 2 Corinthians 2. In verse 14 it says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Okay, so to some it's a smell of life, to others it's a smell of death. Um, I'm a, I, I like running, okay, so I guess I'm a runner. And I came in yesterday from running um, I went kind of in the late morning, so it was already warming up. I get back, I'm like totally drenched, just 
sweating everywhere. And <clears throat> one of my kids comes down. I won't tell you who it was, Job. <laughs> no, I asked him if I could share this. Um, he comes from upstairs, and he's like, my goodness. He's like, you, you just smell up the entire floor when you go running. He's like, I just know when you've been running, because I just, as soon as I walk in, into the floor that you're on, I can smell it, okay? Now, I don't think I smell that bad, but <laughs> the rest of my family apparently does. <clears throat> um, so that smell is repugnant to him, right? Listen, uh, when it talks about the fragrance here, right? That's not a good fragrance. But it's saying that we're putting off a fragrance. As believers, we are putting off a fragrance of sorts, okay? And here, it's saying to some, it's a fragrance from death to death. Some, uh, from life to life. But, but we're the same person, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not like two different people. So why, to some people, does it smell sweet? And why... As a believer, and you're living your life, to some people, does it smell putrid? I mean, because some people get a whiff of that, and they don't want anything to do with Jesus or Christianity. That's just the truth. And then some people get a smell of it, and they, they want more. Okay? I mean, they're interpreting the same smell differently. And my encouragement to you because that, that fragrance, it says the fragrance of the knowledge of him, okay? Um, what he's done for us, what he's shown to us, what he's doing in our lives, what he's um, showing to you through the scriptures, I want to I encourage you, um, let his love for you draw you to him. That would be seeing it as a sweet smell, right? From life to life. Don't let it repel you. Don't let it repel you. Um, it is the same love that God displays to the world that he displays to each person in the world that doesn't know him. And some respond and some don't. Some accept and some reject. But he displays that same love to all unbelievers. And don't let his love drive you away from him. Okay, If that's the case... Um, I mean, repent and come to the one who can do something about your heart. You know, the Bible in the book of Colossians, it talks about um, those who don't know Jesus as being part of the kingdom of darkness, right? So there's this contrast between light and darkness. And um, some of you might be in that darkness. And now you're seeing the light of Christ shine. Don't let it scare you away. Don't be repulsed. Think about John 1. You know, the light comes, right? That's Jesus. And it says his own did not receive him. Right? They reject, they reject the light. Um, don't, don't reject the light. Sw smell the sweetness of the gospel. Every single person in this room, every single person deserves an eternal punishment in hell for the things they've done. And, and we've willfully rejected God. 
some for maybe just a few years of their life, some for many years of their life. But we all, that's what we deserve, every single one of us. But God offers a payment and a way out of that through his son. Through the death of his son, he offers a substitution. He offers to exchange his son's life for yours. That's a pretty good substitution. And it's offered to every single person. And those who have accepted it, the only reason you're not still deserving of an eternal punishment in hell is because you have the blood of Christ that covers those sins. And he has taken, um, Jesus has taken your sins upon him. And in return, he takes what he has, which is no sin, which is righteousness, which is purity and holiness, and he gives it to you. And that's why he can talk about the bride being holy and pure and without spot or blemish. Why? Because the church is awesome and great and just takes a bath every week? No. Because he does that for the church. He's the one that gives the church his righteousness. We got no righteousness on our own. None whatsoever. We got zero. Okay? So even if, even if you could somehow um, wipe away all your sins or live a perfect life, you still don't got righteousness. You got a neutrality. You need righteousness. And Christ is righteousness. We read that in 1 Corinthians. He's the righteousness. And he offers it to us. He offers it to us. How does that happen? By God's grace through faith. You have to trust in Jesus to do that. And pride keeps many people away from Jesus. It's, it's humbling, even humiliating, to admit you can't do it on your own. And listen, friends, <clears throat> um, all of us that are believers here, we're called to be witnesses, right? Acts 1, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But right here, this town, this county, that, this is our Jerusalem, right? This is our Jerusalem. So we start here, and our nation is sliding farther and farther and farther away from God, okay? The darkness seems to be growing. But guess what? You want to know how bright a flashlight is? You don't go outside in the middle of the day, right? You turn off all the lights. You can see how bright the flashlight is. And the gospel shines brightest at such a time as this. Okay, when there's darkness, the light of the gospel should be clearly seen. But guess what? We have to shine it. We gotta shine it. Okay? They only see it if we click the flashlight on, if we're actually sharing the gospel, if the light is actually going forth. So we need to speak forth the gospel because people need it. You need it. I need it. We all need it. And there's people out there who need it. Okay, so let's be faithful to that message. I mean, if God loves his children with this special, unique love, I mean, I want other people to experience that special, unique love. I want other people to be washed by the word through the death of Jesus. I want them to experience the fullness of life that only Christ offers. And it's a beautiful thing, right? 
It is a beautiful thing. So be faithful. Okay? Bask in his love. Enjoy his love. And tell others about his love. Let's pray.